welcome to episode 11, We Rule This House, where we discuss house rules in games. We're talking about that one rule that may make the game a little odd for you, so you decide to make some adjustments to it, but obviously they're not official. They are things that you come up with on your own. Now, we're not talking about things that are, well, Scythe would be a really good game if we didn't have mechs. No, that would completely change the game. So we're talking about little things that are small improvements that we could do to improve on a game. So joining you today is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Hello, everyone. So how's it going? It's good. It's good. It has been a good week of gaming and the weather is getting better. So I'm also getting out a little bit more now that we are allowed to be out. So it's it's nice. Um, it has been a good week. So what have you played? So we've played a few few things this this week, but the the biggest new one to me was Near and Far by Ryan Lockett, um, which was unfortunately a disappointment. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> we had played a few of his games. Um, we used to like City of Iron a lot, although we ended up getting rid of it because we had played it a little bit too much, probably. But for example, we like Above and Below, which is the direct predecessor to Near and Far. And so we were exciting to try near and far and get into the campaign mode of it. But even before getting that far, just playing the basic game, the introductory game, um, the see what happened was a little bit too much compared to the above and below experience. So in both games, for those of you who haven't played, there is a combination of Euro-style mechanisms in uh, above and below and action selection in near and far almost the same with a little bit of worker placement and occupying spots thrown into it. And combined with some narrative spaces in which you go do something and therefore explore usually the underground and things like that, a paragraph is read to you and you have to resolve and make some choices and then you get variable rewards. However, the big difference is that in Above and Below, each of the characters and resources that you spend contributes to your result. And while they can contribute in different levels depending on a die, each of them is an incremental contribution. While in Near and Far, you just roll once a d6 for your action. And with that one die determining the efficacy of your, of your action, the the control you have over it is much less. And so it felt like it was a very busy game to then go read this this paragraph and be disappointed by the result. So while the art was still very cute and the setting of his games is a different kind of fantasy, it really, really didn't work for us. By midway, we were both frustrated. I mean, the rules are very simple, so it wasn't a particular investment in terms of getting into it mentally, but it wasn't worth it. <laughs> Anyhow. Well, that's sad to hear because it is my copy that you played. <laughs> yes. So you used us uh, to punch it. And, and then we also had to learn it and be sad. <laughs> <laughs> so I have been very busy with work. So I have not had as much time for gaming. But the two games that I've played this past week were Biblios. Mm-hmm. And that and that's by Stephen Finn from Yellow. And I believe we've already discussed on here, but it's a lot of fun. 
it's a, a game where you are getting cards and you are trying to get different majorities of different colors and also there are a few ways to manipulate dice and you're also getting money which is used to purchase cards that you're setting aside each turn to be auctioned off later so it's a lot of fun i think that it has the perfect balance between strategy so you're you're investing a lot into the game um, but you're not having to have like a really taxing time on your brain if that makes sense i certainly agree and i think that the simplicity of it is also the the beauty of it the main mechanism in biblios which i'm baffled by the fact that I haven't seen it used anywhere else, with the exception, actually, of uh, the Green Masquerade that we discussed last week, <laughs> is this mechanism where you draw a hand of cards and divide them, and it wouldn't be particularly uh, innovative. But you don't draw them all at the same time. You draw them one at a time and decide what to do with them, which could be applied, I think, to a variety of other mechanisms. In Biblios, it is, as you were saying, mostly kind of a set collection, although it's a set collection with a goal and not set collection scoring on its own. But anyhow, it is some cards you keep, some cards you give to other players, some cards go on the auction. But that could be done on a bunch of different things. So, I don't know, in a cop, you have to attribute one card to the defenses, one card to the reserves, and one card to the enemy threat, or something like that. This idea of you have to distribute the cards without having perfect information at the beginning I think it's brilliant and I would like to see it used more. So I think that should be incorporated into the game you're thinking about making. Oh, the many games for which I have ideas and not enough constancy. And they say that in creative process, having an idea is nothing <laughs> and having to work on it is, is tough. Uh, but yeah, I think that that is definitely something that I would like to explore if I ever got around to actually try and and design something for fun. Biblios the board game. <laughs> no, please. <laughs> well, the theme is so strong. There are five different suits that completely mean something thematically. And mm, um, yes, do you? And you can name them all right now, right? Without looking them up. Well, there are the books about skulls, the books about feathers, <laughs> the books about something else, the red books, and the brown books. Wow! Wow! Thematic. Yeah, I am very prepared. <laughs> yeah speaking of games that still uh, stay in the domain of simple cards but build a lot more and they are a little more thematic although not super thematic i played seven wonders duel again which i know that you don't like uh, or not love at least and i am seeing what people were saying about the expansion really opening it up last time we we talked about it i said that I wouldn't expect someone who didn't enjoy the basic game to find the expansion uh, to be deeper. But the more we know the expansion, the more I can see how that must factor into someone's strategy. And also brings a little bit of theme into it, because when you play the basic game, so Seven Wonders Duel, which is by Antoine Bauza, I think, for Rappos, it's a drafting game, although you draft from a board and the cards are arranged in a pyramid, sure, but... It's a drafting game in which you are building your civilization. And the there is some theme in that, for example, the one thing that I think gets thematic is that with military, the more you get military, the more the possibility of winning by simply crushing your opponent is there rather than winning on points. And the other thematic things is that if you have a lot of resources, 
you have an easier access to building stuff. And that makes sense. Other things like, oh, monuments give you points and science can suddenly win you the game. It's a little more of a stretch. But the expansion adds gods and different gods like gods of commerce give you money. Gods of war give you military power. So it makes sense. And it was great. We hadn't played it since two months ago and it was our second or third game with the expansion and I really really liked it. It's quick, it's intense, it's uncertain until the end because you spend a lot of time building up your machine and so but in the end you have to win on points. So for example I went for a gamble, I tried to deny Anna, my opponent, any access to points but I failed in that and at that point she had built some points and she was able to to get to victory by a few points. So it's interesting, it's engaging, and it's not a cop, which recently I've been playing too much of. <laughs> so I don't mind Seven Wonders Duel, but like I said, I feel like it just is very, I don't even know how to put it. It gets to a point where it's predictable. Yeah, you found it repetitive, you told me, right? That you do a little bit of the same every, every game. But it is by also Bruno Cathala. Okay. Antoine Bauza and Bruno. I don't know. It's a good game. I enjoy it as a two-player game. <laughs> I like the art uh, quite a bit, although I was surprised. Uh, at one point, uh, we had it with us when we were visiting our uh, relatives. And one of my nephews, who is now 10, was smitten by this art, which is good. But in the large environment of board games... It's not when I think of games with a good art, I don't think of Seven Wonders Duel, right? But he liked it so much, he asked me to send him pictures so that he could print them out and have them at home. It was something that surprised me, but I I, <laughs> I still like the art. So the other game that I played this week was Macau by Stefan Feld. So good. Which I was teaching my friend Jean how to play. Mm-hmm. She came over one night and... I was teaching her how to play and I was just so excited and like, it was so, so cool. I was like, Oh, I'm so jealous of you. You get to play Macau for the first time. And it's like, cause it, it's such a great game. And I really feel like that game, I'm still going to say it. I'm going to say it every time I get the chance. Macau needs a deluxified reprint, a reprint because it is very, very out of stock, but I mean, if you're going to reprint it, you might as well make it deluxified. I have an objection to that. Because then you're going to buy it. Yeah, but then my well-loved copy that is starting to wear out at the corners and shows how much I love it. And with the Macau true coins that you got us, all of that <laughs> will be lost like uh, tears in the rain. I, I actually really, really like Macau. Is probably my favorite Feld. Uh, well, it, it plays for the spot with Aquasphere. I like them both. I think Aquasphere is a little more of a clever design, but Macau has that rondel. So for those who haven't played, Macau has a lot of things that you can find in other games. Like you, you spend resources to move on the board, to do a little bit of delivery. You have some area, not really a control by area connecting, and you develop cards that give you special powers. But at the core of Macau, you have this system in which six dice of six different colors are rolled every round, and each player chooses two. They are not mutually exclusive, so you and I could choose exactly the same. 
And then that determines how much of that resource you will get, but also how far in the future you will get it. So if you choose a die that shows two pips, you will get two of that resource in two rounds from now. And since you're trying to combine resources at the same time to be able to make the cards, that is extremely tense, extremely interesting. And this immediate balance between how far in the future with how much I get, is it's great. It's juicy, it's strategic and frustrating. And there is punishment all around for everyone who wants to take it. It's good. The best part for me was my friend thought she was going to win until the very end. When in the last turn, I did all my deliveries and got ahead of her by about 10 points. Uh, Jackie does not endorse being mean to people and making them think that they're winning and then crushing their hopes and dreams in the last round. Um. Uh... Doesn't he, though? <laughs> Ooh, I had the card that lets you buy points twice. A weird mechanism. So not only did I have that card, but I also at one point got, um, for three coins, nine points. Twice? So I bought two of those. So that's really what like pushed me way out in front. But yeah, I, I really like that game. I think that the thing that I really enjoy is with a lower not even with a lower player count, because you put out the same amount of cards for each person. You just remove some if you're playing with less than four. So the thing that I really like about that game and Bruges, also by Feld, is that you never really see all of the cards. There are cards that sometimes will come out, and I'm like, I have never seen this card (laughs) in all the times that I've played. I didn't know that it existed, And it has this really cool ability that I've never used before. And I'm excited to see it and excited to try it. And I like to take those cards that are new and fun and interesting and focus my whole strategy around them and see, like, this card comes out early next time. Will I, you know, go for it? Or did it not work? Or it's a lot of fun. I really think that those games have such a high replayability, which is something that I particularly look for in games and i think it's important to note that you're getting these cards you're going through all these cards but you still have a bunch left over at the end you're not going through all of them and then depending on your player count you're not even getting to use all of the cards that you're revealing so it is so good so so good. i agree and that's what gives it depth and replayability although especially for people who have playing for the first time or have only played it a few times, sometimes you do find less than exciting games, not necessarily broken or that they don't work because usually when the pool of cards is sad or the dice are particularly unfriendly, they're unfriendly to everyone, right? If you keep rolling very low numbers or if the only high number that you roll is always the same resource, it becomes hard to complete cards therefore to activate the powers and also some cards are way more interesting than others regardless of efficiency and power some of them are more interesting more stimulating and so there have been games in which like the last time we played together it was yes. game. <laughs> we couldn't play any complex card uh, the ones that we got were variation of the same oh you get money for black and i get money for blue and it was very meh And sure, you are still trying to do better with what you're given than your opponent, but some other games are 
expensive instead and they keep growing and you do more and more stuff and in the end you're racing through the board and getting neighborhoods collecting stuff delivering it and producing gold and buying points and sure both situation can be very competitive very tense but one of them is probably more rewarding to people who are playing it for the first time so i actually have a question for you so i know that you love macau yeah and I know that you do not ever want to play Terraforming Mars. And I know that that they are completely different and completely different games. But I remember once you telling me that the a particular reason that you did not care for Terraforming Mars is because people draw from one singular deck. Correct. So how is that really different? Than Macau. So first of all, Macau, um, there are two cards that, uh, there are two sources that contribute to the card pool. One is from the deck that is indeed one deck. And the second one, however, is a track of cards that you know what's coming. You can plan for that, especially if you are uh, later in the draft order. You want to be ready for those in case those are all that is left. The second is that while the deck is large, potentially as large as Terraforming Mars, I'm not 100% sure, there is a lot of redundancy. For example, there are six cards, each of which costs four cubes of the same color, for gray, for blue, for uh, red, that do basically the same thing. They give you a, a cube of that color. And there are mm -hmm. six cards that deliver stuff and give you more points for that. And so between that and the way the draft works, an open draft in which you can bid by moving on the wall, which is the turn order track, to be first and have more choice. The fact that that choice is redundant and open makes it a little more acceptable to me. I never draw from a deck. There is never a moment in which I draw from a deck. Although I must say that the situation in Terraforming Mars, I still look at it more favorably than, say, a Wingspan, because at least that's a real draft. If you choose that variation. I mean, I'm not trying to push games on you, but Terraforming Mars is coming out with a very fancy box that includes... I know, I know. And I'm not saying because I might be the old grumpy me and still refuse to play it, but if I was ever to play Terraforming Mars, 3D uh, terrains would be certainly the, the version that I would consider. Mm, yeah, it's definitely an upgrade. Definitely an upgrade. I've gotten so many notifications about it, and I'm looking forward to getting it because it's probably just going to be one that I have to get. Are they doing anything for the cards, though? Because the cards with the clip art and the pictures from the vacation of the designer and all of that were the ones that troubled me the most. <laughs> I don't think they are. Well, I, are they still using like his five-year-old child to, to do some of the art in the game? Yeah, yeah, they are. They, uh, they have uh, enlisted the help of a whole kindergarten class. Okay, great. At least, at, well, it would be better. At least it would be a consistent art style. <laughs> so speaking of games, did you end up acquiring On Mars or not? It's coming. Okay. It is coming. I remember you mentioning that. That's one I'm, I'm willing to try. So another game that I try that I played recently, as I said, we have been playing a lot of co-op, which I was joking before, I really like we are playing through the campaign of the new Pathfinder the card game, which I think they did a great, great job streamlining and improving. But yesterday night, I got to play a game that I hadn't played in a while, which is Lords of Xidit. 
Oh, good. Lords of Xerath is a programming game done right, I think. Meaning that, so in Lords of Xerath by Régis Bonnesset, uh, first of all, is published by Libelud, and like most of the games, it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So in this game, you you move on a board, you collect resources, in this case, warriors of different kinds, farmers and archers and clerics and warriors and wizards in, in different places. Then you use them to kill monsters, and it's very much a euro. You spend them like resources, and you get determined, predetermined resources and bonuses from the killing. So it's not a very fantasy fighting game. It's a very much a euro. But the interesting thing is that these three things that you collect, well, first of all, the programming part is streamlined, but very good. You move and you do actions. So it's not hard to program right. It's not like a RoboRally or anything like that. But there is a lot of, this works only if Nathan does this when I think he would do this. And if I do this, I'm doing my action, but I know I'm also throwing a, a wrench into um, some, someone else's plan. And so that's interesting. But the other thing is that you work towards three kinds of goals. Uh, building towers on the board, controlling territories, and collecting gold. And collect uh, the gold you collect is secret. The influence is in constant movement because you are controlling territory. So if people place more influence, you might lose control of a territory, while the towers are simply a visible resource that you are building. So if you have built eight towers and I have built seven, I've built fewer. And then at the end of the game, you go through these three categories in a order that is different in every game, although it's public at the beginning of the game. And for example, in our game yesterday, the first thing we checked was... Uh, influence and whoever has the least influence is eliminated from the game that's a tricky game and that's that's great yesterday for example and that was perfect i managed to actually win the first two categories and came second in the last one and lose because the other player the player won ryan uh, was able to stay in it was second in influence he was third in towers or something like that well the, the opposite but he stayed in until the last check and you only need to win the last the last category as long as you're not last in the ones before so not only is hard to to predict but also you often have this oh, I really, really need that specific player to get eliminated. Because if they get eliminated, I end up first. But if they don't, I end up fourth. There are things like that. And that's very interesting. I was saying that having the influence being first would be making it for a very interesting game. Because uh, often that is a very fluctuating value because people are trying to outbid you in certain areas to have the majority to get more points and also the secret box in the middle, which you don't necessarily know how many influence are put in there or, you know, that's revealed at the end. So it's a very, that being first would make it for a very difficult game to predict. Absolutely. And uh, Lots of City does that very well. It also plays in a very reasonable amount of time between an hour and a half and two hours, but it's true to that, doesn't overstay its welcome. I think, though, as I have told you before, but uh, for those who are listening, so this is the new edition re-implementation of an old game called Himalaya, in which you were doing, the game was almost the same with uh, two differences. One, the categories were always in the same order, 
And second, the theme was very different. You were traveling around with a yak, you were a group of monks, and you were reaching different temples and stupas and contributing with monks to the different temples. Something like that. I haven't played the original. And why Lords of City is gorgeous. I like fantasy themes in general. I like uh, Xavier Cunefi mm, Durand. Uh, his art is beautiful. It's charming. It's in this non-standard fantasy world that uh, both Xidit and the Seasons are set in. It's very charming, but Himalaya sounded like it had one of the most original themes in any board game, and I would have loved to have seen what this company and these artists could have done with that theme. I mean, there is a yak in the game, but it's just one of the uh, player standees now. Imagine having little minis of yaks and different color monks. I would really have loved it. But the game is, it's great. It's a game that I like a lot and one that I have never seen fail. There are games that I really love, but that sometimes I introduce it to friends. We played it and at least one person I can point to most games and say, well, that time that we played with that person, that person didn't like it. So far... Everyone who has played Lords of City has liked it. So maybe it's not my favorite game, but I know that it's a game that I can propose to people and uh, know that it will go right. Uh, I know it has a three-player version that I think you played. I never did. We did play it. It was sad, right? Oh, it was so sad. Because <laughs> you have uh, an autonomous Black Knight character who they have their own like little scoring track and it's not great. Oh, so it's your favorite. It's a dummy player that does things. Yeah. Okay. It's a dummy player that does things. And then you're also playing with less of the board. Yeah. So that was not great. Yeah, I know. Because you still need to to create the tension that comes from, you know, are you going there? Are you going there? Where are you going? I need to know what you're doing, which of course you'd never tell. But it needs that tension for for this game because the because like you said the actions are so simple. It's are you going red or blue or are you taking an action where you are, or are you waiting? Which often people forget about until someone does it and they're like, ah, oh. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that usually gives a lot of chagrin to people. Yes. Um, well. Yeah, that was Lords of City. It's spelled X-I-D-I-T. It has been a while now. It's 2014. It might be out of print, um, but it's very cool. I very much recommend that game to anyone who likes any sort of programming games. Because it really is the most streamlined experience that I've had with programming games. Yeah, uh, I think that that's the reason that people tend to like it, even people who don't like programming games per se, because the the programming part is very easy. You have five options. One is waiting. One is taking an action, which is a very generic thing that you simply do where you want. And the other is moving around, but it's not designed to be a complex programming. It's a, It's a programming, meaning that you have to decide what to do before knowing what other people are doing. So the programming part is not the difficulty, is not uh, an interacting with the board in clever ways, interacting with the other players at the right time. And that's that's great. Yeah. Have you played anything else this week? Yeah. They mentioned that we got the new Spectre Ops. Yes. Yeah. And um, we have played that. And uh, we revisited Small World, 
um, Small World is a very popular game. They just came out with a new version in the World of Warcraft setting. Yes, yes, yes. We have the, the regular one, but I'm very happy to see Small World keep going strong. I think it's a brilliant game, um, a game that I've played dozens and dozens of times. With two players, it's so in your face. Because <laughs> it becomes a lot about, I need to take you down and I will do it and I keep attacking you. And it's so brutal. I still like it a lot. I think I like it a little bit more with the self-balancing act of the three or four player game. With two, it was a little bit too much of not only pummeling on the other player constantly, but also a little bit of a snowball effect if you get a very good race in. So in small world, every round you decide whether you want to continue with your previous race, your previous combination of race and power, or like you do at the beginning of the game, you pick a new combination. That's where the great variability of the game comes in because you have these powers that combine differently with different races in every fantasy races, obviously, in every game. But with two players, if you manage to find the right one at the right time, you get so much of a leg up. And since there are no other players to balance that out, that it can be a little snowbally. But it was it was good. I really like it. And uh, every time I play it, even when it is, doesn't come that long since last time, I still feel like why I haven't, haven't I played this more often? It's it great. I got rid of my copy. It wasn't something that I really liked that much. And you would think it had, you know, the the key aspects of things that I like in games, which is just being really competitive, being really mean, area control, all those kinds of things, which I I really enjoy and really look for in games. And for some reason, it just didn't click for me. I much prefer Ethnos. I've played it only once. I I don't see the, beside the being on, I, I get the thematic uh, connection. I didn't feel like they were in direct competition. I know it has been it has been a, a comparison that has been done. And for me, well, I prefer Small World, but I don't feel like I I wouldn't own Ethnos because I own Small World, uh, if you get my meaning. Yeah. Because the way Ethnos works with the cards and the set collection, it's very different from Small World, which is basically deterministic combat. Um, at its core, it's deterministic combat. is You spend your pool of troops for the turn to conquer territories. Um, and that, while it is an area majority, well, no, area control and a fantasy theme game, I think they, they give me a very different experience. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like I like the, the way that Ethnos handles it a little bit better than Small World. I still have the Small World app, but um, I played it for when I was doing my Game of Game of Day challenge. And I don't know, it just is, it's a miss for me. I can't really put my finger on it. I guess I would have to play it again to really understand why it's a miss for me. Yeah, well, to be fair, uh, contrary to what I was saying for Lords of City, probably if I had to choose only one to keep, first I would be in very, very much pain. But um, I would probably pick Small World, but Small World doesn't have that Lords of City quality of everyone liked it. With Small World, I have had I played it with, at this point, dozens and dozens of people. And I certainly have 
more than one who didn't like it. Uh, Rachel doesn't like it. Some of our friends that we played this with in Italy didn't like it. Uh, while it is definitely a successful game, also in my gaming environment, I tend to have a lot more people who like it. It doesn't have that, or you will like it for sure. And also, I think it needs to be explained very well. Is one of those games where explaining the rules is not enough. You have to, when you explain to someone new, explain some of the dynamics of the game in the flow of keeping in check other players, attacking their active race and going into decline at the right moment. Things like if you want to push someone out, often attacking their active race might not be enough. You have to take out their not active race. There are a few directives that you want to make people aware of. Otherwise, their especially their first experience can be an extremely uh, limited, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it is about that time for us to get into today's topic, Woo-hoo! which is house rules. Yes. Um, so first of all, how do you feel about house rules in general? Without getting into any detail, uh, at first, are they a positive or negative thing? <sighs> For me, it's probably a negative. Me too. Uh, and uh, we will get into, we use a, a few, but I I don't look for them. I don't try them. I don't, tr- I don't spend my time trying to think about them. However, there is an however. So the first, <laughs> the first exception that I want to draw about house rules um, is that I don't have any negative feeling towards those who use them. That's something that shocks me. I have people, uh, both met in real life and online on BGG, that have some, they take offense when people use house rules to their favorite games. Uh, and they go like, how dare you think that you know better than the designer or something like that. Which They're jeopardizing the integrity of the game. Yes, and I mean, I would understand if someone came to your tournament and tried to enforce house rules on you, but take Macau. Let's say someone found that, I don't know, Macau is too punishing, they, they don't have fun, and they decided instead of starting with three cubes at the beginning, you start with six, one, two, and three, rather than just one and two. Sure, more power to you. When I play, I will try to play it with the right rules because I think they work. But if that takes a game that other people, otherwise people wouldn't play and makes them play it and have fun with it, I, I see no problem. I am baffled and I'm not making this up. I have met people in real life that said, oh yeah, but I saw these people playing this game with this house rule. And the, the point was not, therefore, I didn't play with them. It was, how dare they? And I, I don't get it. I understand. <laughs> Yeah, I think it would have to be something that I really wanted to play for me to, especially like if it was, it was a new game that I had never played before and I sat down and then they read all the rule or they went through the explanation and then they were like, okay, well, that was that's how you play the normal game. But for us, we do X, Y, and Z. I would be so disappointed. I would feel cheated of my first experience of the game. That's fair enough. We will get into which ones, if any, we use, and there are some exceptions to this. I must say that part of it, I understand this reaction, this negative reaction, because a little bit of it stems sometimes from people unexperienced with games more than with a game and trying to find a fix. 
For example, when I started playing hobby games, we really, really liked, and we still like a lot, a Twilight Struggle. However, Twilight Struggle is this big four-hour game in which at crucial moments during the game, you roll a D6 to see how your action results. And sometimes that can be very frustrating because we do the exact same action. You roll a six and I roll a one. And that's a big difference of result. To the point that when we were very early, we had few games, we had played Twilight Struggle a little bit. We tried and implement a variant in which instead of rolling a D6, we would roll two D3s. So to reduce the variety. The point was that it is not needed. Overall, it balances out, etc. But at the same time, those few games where we tried it, I had fun. It's not like I look back and I go, oh, those dark days of my life. So I don't know. I think there is there is a level of make what makes you not just happy in general. That's a, a pleonastic truism. But it's your game. It's like if you buy... Uh, stuff for a recipe and then you decide you want to change it sure you bought the meal kit but no one is going to come to your home and and blame you so you shouldn't feel the blame either when you're trying to play a game the way you like it more i don't know i wouldn't write to to a designer telling him well you were clearly wrong you have to change this rule but if you want to play your game with your rules again it's your game yeah even expanding it out of games you have actual house rules for games for gaming in general oh yeah that that, that one i feel very strongly about actually <laughs> very opposite of house rules the few that we have uh in terms of gaming rules and we will get to that in in a few minutes those i always mention them at the beginning being very clear and saying we usually play with these rules uh, if you are okay with it. Otherwise, you can play without. Actually, th- those that you are... So what Nathan is referring to here, what you're referring here, is we have a decalogue of house rules, meaning rules of our house when we play games. And there are things from feel free to get food. So yeah, it's an amazing place to game, our place, because we have food and beverage. <laughs> but also things like... If uh, a die is not flat, you shall re-roll that. Or once your turn is over and someone else has taken their turn, you don't take back actions. And you shouldn't ask to take back actions because you put people in the uncomfortable situation of either flat out saying no or begrudgingly let you do it. And then what if at that point that changes what they do? So in general, I think that Whatever the rules are, they need to be clear. So some people think that a die, unless it's clearly cocked, you use it. And it's fine as long as it's clear. Some other things are not so much as a rule, but the behavior. Uh, For example, especially when you play with new players, you should try, in my opinion, and we certainly try to do it in our place, to limit how much you tell other people what to do. Because otherwise you limit the experience for the people who are playing the game anew and you create this uncomfortable situation in which experienced players, rather than focusing on the game, they are focusing on manipulating the new player and making them do whatever they need them to do. 
and that's mm-hmm. not kosher in my in my house and in my my approach to games. Yeah, no, I remember the first time that I was made aware of the list, and I thought, you know, that's a really great idea. So I will have to come up with my own set of gaming rules for my magnificent game room. Like no cops. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think your gaming environment, including us, would would go along with those rules. You would have a revolution in your head. <laughs> a coup. Exactly. <laughs> Not cop, though, so you should be fine. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing that I wanted to, to touch upon in general about house rules is that actually with one or with a couple of exceptions, most of house rules that we experience don't stem from actually deciding to experience it, but from misunderstanding a rule, then going back to the right rule and realizing that we were having more fun before. So it's not even an intention of, oh, we know better, we should fix this. It's just that, oh, that makes this game less enticing. And that's also why, with one noticeable exception, our house rules are never in games that are mostly about interaction of the rules and the engine. So basically, I have no house rules for Euros. There are games that tend to that side, but for example, I've never used a house rule in a felt game, but I wouldn't going to say terraforming mars with the idea of okay let's play this and then find the house rule to make it better for me right um unless it's something that is acknowledged to be broken for example in in Solkin, i implement a variant that was suggested by the designer after it was played a lot and people found a, a thing that didn't work wait wait wait. what what is that so luciani said that you should limit the exchange rate on the market space to a total of 16 corn of value or 18, depending on how much you feel that needs to be limited in and out. So in Solkin, a game that I adore, there is this action that is a market action that is meant for you to, oh, I need this clearly. I I, I stand by this this statement. Uh, It was clearly meant to be a correction. Oh, I didn't manage to get exactly the resources I need. Let me change this in order to be able to gather something. But since this happens through exchanging resources with corn, uh, they develop strategies in which you ignore corn completely and just pump out resources and that get corn with that space, or vice versa, ignore resources completely, get a ridiculous amount of corn and then get your resources that way. And that was clearly not the design intent. And so by capping the amount of, inter- of, of transactions that you can do, that functions again. But that comes from the designer. So it's more of an errata than, than a house rule. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't even know about that. So I, <laughs> I guess I haven't played enough Zulkin with you. Well, it, it also, it usually comes when people have played it online and have played it hundreds of times. And so they have found a way to basically try and and make the game frail uh, or break it i think yeah so interestingly enough i do have a house rule for one of my heroes which one anachrony oh fair enough i think i know which one it is and i if it's that i strongly support it so it's regarding when you have 
a lot of unrepaid resources and you're trying to figure out who who gets um anomalies then uh or i always forget which what the words are for for them i think you have paradoxes yes 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 paradoxes so you get paradoxes and on the third paradox you get an anomaly which is the actual tile that takes up space on your board which is trash it just is there to take up space and make your life more difficult but so the thing about anachrony was that you would go to each little era and whoever had the most unrepaid resources in that specific moment in time you would have that person roll a dice and the dice range anywhere from no paradoxes one paradox or two paradoxes in this game so much is put into planning and figuring out how you're going to get resources and and using water efficiently which is another resource and using your workers which is another resource that so much goes into this game that that really felt too up to chance in a game that is so so heavy in the thought process of how you're trying to figure things out i absolutely agree and i think that the reason that House rules that you use works so well is that you roll a d6 that has four, you get one of them faces, a double and a zero. So it's absolutely realistic that in a game you would never roll either the zero or the two because you don't roll that dozens of times. You roll it probably six times in total. If, if yeah, And so I think that balances that out without taking out a significant amount of Oh, but that was something that was built in for you to to manage and interact with. And I think it's a great, great change. Right. So instead of rolling, we just say, we look at the, the moment in time and we say, okay, this person has the majority here. They get a paradox. It just is something that you can expect to get. And then it takes out that, you know, oh, I didn't plan for two or, oh, that's not fair, that person didn't get any paradoxes. So it, it seems unnecessarily luck-based in a game that is, like I said, just so... There's so many resources that you're trying to balance to make your engine work. And that just made it seem like something that wasn't... I don't want to say that it wasn't balanced, but I feel like it was providing variability to something that didn't need variability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I... Again, I, I, I can see that. Uh, I usually don't like the intermission of a singular but important variability in a non-variable uh, game. And so that that's a perfect fix for me. Going into, I, I did manage to put together a top three favorite house rules of mine, but uh, I want to specify why I excluded two of them from my top three. One is seasons. When we play seasons, we draft 10 cards rather than nine especially if we play with new players. I don't think that's actually a good rule. I, I do like the tension once people know it, but when people are learning a game, having that ease of play of having one card that you don't have to care about makes it a little more accessible. But again, I don't stand by that rule. I don't think it's a rule that improves or balances the game. It's just making it a little easier for people. And the other one is Battlestar Galactica. I won't spend more time at Battlestar Galactica by Corey Knizia. I think it's a great game. <laughs> so many expansions and they are all modular that first of all, whenever you're playing, you're basically making up your set of house rules. We're using this and not that. We're using this and not that, which even if they are 
in the rules, it ends up being a unique experience. And so you have to be very clear on what you're using at the beginning. And the second one is there are rules that I call of ease of play. So for example, it's a game that has complex rules about what you can you say, when can you say it. And we have some rules to facilitate and be clear about when and about what you can talk. And some of that is called for by the rules. We went a little more into details, and I think that that helps. But going into real house rules, one house rule that I know that you, you, you are fine using too is in Lang's Blood Rage. It's a minor thing, but normally in Blood Rage, if you play by the rule, you are drafting to the same side, always to the left, uh, which especially when people start getting experience can become a significant factor, especially if some people are more experienced at the table than others, because playing after a player in the draft who has played less than you becomes a great advantage. Going left, right, left in the three ages makes it so that, okay, now I'm taking the cards that you need, but next round you can hate draft me. And I think that's (laughs) a very simple rule, easy to implement, and yet I do think it makes the game a better experience for me. I'm certainly not more experienced in games or in design than Lang. That's that's going back to what I was saying in the beginning. It's definitely not a claim about knowing better than the designer, but simply that at my table where players of different experience with the game must be able to play, we're not... All, oh, we have all played it 70 times and we are tournament ready. I want to be able to play with whomever in any moment with different levels of commitment. And that makes it smoother. Yeah, I think that that rule, and funny enough, I didn't know that that was a house rule because I just learn my games from you quite often. <laughs> you didn't learn Blood Rage from me. Oh, no, you're right. But I don't know. I just, again, we're going back to me saying the same thing over and over, which is I usually play in two. Oh, where it doesn't matter. That's true. So (laughs) whether we pass it to the left or pass it to the right, still getting to the same person back and forth. (laughs) And also other drafting games use it. So I think it feels natural to people. uh, Seven Wonders does that. Um, And so I think people are not shocked by it. Yeah. And no, I totally agree with you because it... It would be huge for for someone to, if, if you're not all at the same level of familiarity with the game, going after someone who is brand new, passing all these cards that have great synergies together would be like handing someone the game if you're consistently doing the same thing over and over. Do you have any more house rules? I was just looking around and I don't think I actually have any more house rules. I think that is the only one that I use. You played by the book. I do. I do. I really enjoy learning what the rules are and sticking to them. And if I don't like them, I usually will get rid of the game versus trying to fix it. Because there are so many games, especially now that the hobby has blown up, that I don't think that there's a real reason, unless it's something minute, like what we said about the last one on your list here, the one with Blood Rage. But I think I do agree. And specifically because, for example, with Blood Rage, is not I will not play Blood Rage if someone wants to play it by the correct rules. And so I do agree with you. If the game needs fixing, I would probably not try and go and fix it. If there is this easy-to-implement thing, that makes it more fun for me, I would probably play it. But actually my second house rule in my top three is one that I never got to play because everyone else says I'm crazy. So it's probably good. 
uh, one. But um, so, as you know, I will now pretend to like Rainer Nietzsche a lot just to make my point. So, oh, I mean, I, as you know, I really, really love all of Nizia designs. And so, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I actually like some of his games, but I think that one very smart mechanism is one that has now been used in other games, but it was common to, for example, Ice Society, which is you want to score the most without being the worst in something else. In Ice Society, you want the most points without being the one who has spent the most money. And I think that in Colt Express, when playing with five or six players, the player who gets shot the most, Aka Nathan, if he's in the game, should be eliminated right away. So in Colt Express, a game by you get shot, which simply means you get a negative card in your deck, which is can be very painful. Until the last round, because in the last round, it's a game, it's a programming game where you use cards with different action from your end, you play them to a common deck and then you go to solving that deck at the end of each round. But so bullets, which are the things that people shoot you at, um, get from their shooting reserve or from the neutral shooting reserve, they get put in your deck and they clog your deck. But during the last round, that makes no sense. And so I think it would be actually very interesting to try it at least one to see okay, you cannot completely ignore the danger just because you're getting the money, and that would make maybe not you the the target for everyone because someone maybe wants to target someone who has a shot at winning the game. And so that would be great. Wow, you just said that I didn't have a shot at winning the game. Well, when, when some people <laughs> all the time because they can, that makes it very hard to perform in the game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And <laughs> top of my list is a game that... Uh, I mentioned it before. It's my favorite house rule, and we got it by mistake. I think it's also an official variant in the rulebook, but we definitely um, implemented it because we didn't know better, and then we decided to stick with it. So the game is Isla Dorada by Bruno Faiduti, Andrea Angiolino, Alan Moon, and Pio Giorgio Paglia. It's published by Fanforge. The artist is actually the same as uh, Lords of Xidit. I didn't know. Javier Gunefi Durand. And it's a weird game. I will not try to uh, describe it in full. Isla Dorada is a game in which you are part of an expedition. There is one token on the board that represents all of you. And you're moving around and you have secret objectives that you're trying to achieve. You want to go to certain places and not to other places. And the way the big piece moves is everyone contributes resources to moving one way or another. Like if you want to move through the jungle, you contribute go no go. And if you want to move through the mountains, you spend the axe, which makes the game awesome, obviously. The axe are, just so you all listen, know, the best animal to have in games or otherwise. But since I cannot have a pet yak because I don't live in the mountain range, I have to look for them in games and Isla Dorada at them. However, the basic rules actually say that you have to choose where you want to go and bid your resources. While the way we play it, which is kind of one of the variants, which is also in the rulebook we found figure out afterwards, is that you can combine. So if Jackie wants to go to Kilitiping for three Gonogos, you can go to Qualtop for two and someone else can join you offering two more of whatever the animal you need to go there so your bid goes to four and bids my three gonogo bid and that makes it way more dynamic 
I don't understand how those are not the regular rules. I think it's because it's a little more funky and they wanted to keep it streamlined, but I still don't think this is a game that people play uh, after playing Monopoly. And so I think that that's an interesting change and one that takes a good game and makes it great. So I've never played that game. Well, it's a game that requires five or six, in my opinion, and can get over an hour long and that can sometimes be extremely hate-generating, So, but we will have to try it. It's mainstay of JackieCon, so we will have to, to make it happen. Yes. Yeah, no. If we have five or six, though, I want to play, like, Rex. Well, it's a very, very different experience. This is, like... <laughs> It's like playing in the World Series of Poker, Rex, or playing, uh, I don't know, a trick-taking game. Uh, but I really like it. And it's super cute. It has a fat Bigfoot with his chunky miniature. It's very colorful. You have treasures. You have special cards. There is a little bit of take that, but not too much. But the game is not too involved. It also has a very interesting mechanism where to power up your cards and to get more cards... You get the card around, basically, but to get more, you can spend coins, but you have fixed amount. You start with 10 coins, they dwindle, they never replenish, and at the end of the game, they award points. So it's interesting that you have to deal with how much you want to use them, and that's that's an interesting, the dwindling resource that cannot be replenished is a unique mechanism that has nothing to do with this specific house rule, but... I think it's interesting. So in general, it sounds like you use house rules a lot more than I even knew. And I think that is, it speaks to the kind of house rules that you use because the Cult Express one is just ridiculous. But <laughs> but um, the, the Blood Rage one was so seamlessly incorporated into the game that we've played, I didn't even know that it was a house rule. So I think that that speaks to the kind of house rules that you you use so i think that we're on the same page is what i'm trying to say when it comes to house rules yeah and as i said i while i have no problem with people doing that i don't see the appeal as you said in a reality where there are more good games that one can play i don't see the appeal in trying and making a game that doesn't work for me work for me i even, for example, take the Cult Express. It's a little bit of a butad, right? I, I bring it up mostly to be fun. But that's exactly the point. I have played Cult Express 25 times. I've liked it every time. I will teach it to anyone who wants to play it. I think it's a beautiful, funny, dynamic game. And I don't need that house rule to be in. I think it could be fun. But if I thought that the game needed a rule revision it probably would have left my collection a long time ago. Yeah. Plus, I don't want to be eliminated from the game every time we play. Well, that would be the, the the one thing that I would use to push and say, well, people, don't worry. It's going to be Nathan. And so people... <laughs> <laughs> That's how you, you justify it and get it, get it implemented into practice. Yeah, I actually have a contact with the publisher and they have to to let them understand that that would be very good. Uh, no, actually, the one thing that I don't consider house rules is levels of complexity in uh, cooperative games. Sometimes, especially when playing games that are designed to be easier, we have used the rules that are already there to make it even harder. For example, 
and it's weird because, for example, going back to Pathfinder, the card game that we are playing recently, some of the house rules with or the variants that we had found on BGG are now part of the rules in the second edition. But that's then just in cooperative games, right? Is people realized that it was not hard enough. And so you use the mechanism that are already in the game to adjust the difficulty. And it's inherently balanced because there is no player who is damaged by that, right? It, the problem with, I said I would never use a, a house rule, a significant house rule in a game like a Euro or Blood Rage, only minor things, because if, say, you were starting to say, well, this card that gives you two points for each figure you release from Valhalla should give you only 1.5. At that point, you are making that strategy not viable. While in a cooperative game, you're playing together, so if you feel that one thing is too easy for you, you are not taking out options of anyone, you are limiting on yourself. And I think that's a different situation. Yeah. Well, uh, that's all I had. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We discussed house rules and a bunch of games as usual. We'll be back next week. Uh, we are trying to, and we have been good recently, to uh, stick to our publishing schedule. Remember that by subscribing, you don't need to wait for me to manage to figure out how to best share this thing. We are available on <laughs> Spotify and Apple Cut podcast and anchor you can find us on bgg on on facebook instagram or reach us via email at borgengambit at uh, gmail.com thank you to everyone who sent in your feedback or your positive comments we appreciate both and until next time i'm jackie and i'm nathan bye bye